What's up, guys? Welcome into the OBR Film Breakdown. We have another weekend edition for you guys. I appreciate you checking out yesterday's show with Brad Ward. I'm your host, Jake Burns. We are going to talk about a topic, and I'm really happy with the time we got with today's guest because I think it's great. It's a great topic solver, I guess is a way to say it. Like, uh, we get a ton of answers, a ton of clarity. It's very granular, very specific, and very focused. So I want to give that caveat ahead of time. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, things up at the OBR right now that went up here over the weekend. GM chair from Jack Duffin looked at linebacker 22, 23, and 24. Check that out. Barry McBride's content has been up through the OBR Newswire. Always great stuff from Barry. We had a really fun UDFA, so undrafted free agents study. Anthony Reinhardt did the position groups most likely to sign the Browns keep from the UDFA group that they have brought in and kind of gave you some historical trend data to look at that. So those are the things we have up now. We have a fun Sunday David and Joku film room to show you where he's improved, what he can get better at, those sorts of things. Uh, well worth your time. Check that out. And like I said earlier, we had a an episode on Saturday with Brad Ward where we went through who would be impacted the most on the Browns roster and uh, those above them in the, in the, the GM coaching circle that would be the most impacted by a long suspension for Watts. And we kind of laid out our thoughts on who that would hurt the most and really cover who it would help you the most, because it doesn't really help anybody if he's suspended for a long time. So we covered who would hurt the most. Thought it was a interesting topic that Brad and I discussed, but today's episode is going to also focus on Watson, but we start to get an understanding of the legal precedents around all of these things with Watson's situation, because it is unique. There's some clarity that we get from our guest, who's Daniel Wallach. He's at Wallach Legal on Twitter. He does a ton of different things. He's a sports betting and game gaming law attorney. He founded and uh, continues to do his Conduct Detrimental podcast, which is great. He's writing as a legal analyst for The Athletic. And man, does he have insights galore on what's going on with Watson and where everything can go as far as the three-day hearing, where it moves from here, how Sue Robinson sort of goes through, justifies, and, and, and makes decisions, what her decision ultimately is, and the things that could work against or Watson in terms of what she's allowed to look at. I think it's important to understand this if you want to have an idea of how this process is working for Watson and what is in his favor, and what is against him. So this is highly insightful. Daniel was on 92.3 recently. He was on some Twitter spaces. He's been around, and he is a great follow. That's, again, Wallach Legal, at W-A-L-L-A-C-H Legal, L-E-G-A-L on Twitter. Make sure you follow him, because I think he does a really nice job, and I, I'm really happy with how this this interview went, because I think he explains it in a way I had not even understood before, so I really wanted to share it with you. So let's get over to that interview with Daniel right now after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Daniel, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. I feel uh, like I'm a sort of a, a symbolic resident of the city of Cleveland, right? I should get a key to the city after all this. Yeah, well, listen, we were talking off the air a little bit about how you, you've had some recent runs in some prominent brown spots, and you're talking about how you didn't know there were so many podcasts and places to talk about the Browns. Kind of a crazy fan base, right, man? That's yeah. something that you, you get exposed to. I'm a Giants fan, and, you know, we have we have our, you know, sort of newsletters and websites, but I think there are more Browns podcasts than Giants podcasts. And i got to ask you point blank after experiencing all this. I know we talked about this very briefly off the air, but how the heck did you ever lose a football team given all the – the passion and emotion, you know, for the Browns. I mean, it's a major, major, you know, NFL city with so much fan enthusiasm and, and, and craziness, like one of the top markets. How did you ever lose a team? That's the question everyone's been trying to answer forever, right? And kind of tying it to uh, the ownership and all of that. It, it probably speaks pretty well that the, that they were able to keep keep the team, the name, the colors, all of that stuff, right? That they were able to hang on to that because most of the time a team gets taken it gets evaporated, and then uh, all of a sudden you, you you lose everything with it. So that's that's a, the fans were crazy enough. The city sued, and and they were able to keep the teams. Pretty wild. Well, you know, I kind of contrast what happened in Cleveland versus what happened more recently in St. Louis. I, I mean, Cleveland could give a master class on how to keep an NFL team. You use the, the you use the legal system and and litigation to actually get a team back. Uh, yeah. And and St. Louis, you know, they, they they sued only for money damages. And even though all the you know all the you know I guess the the positive results were, were stacking up one after the other, St. Louis was in a position to get their team back as a settlement, or at least to get a new expansion franchise. The NFL didn't want to go to trial. They they were going to face you know sworn testimony by by all the NFL officials that could have been used in future lawsuits from other cities. There was a prospect of multi billion dollars worth of damages, and they didn't even they didn't even ask for a team as a settlement. They just walked away with some money that the municipal leaders are going to fritter away. Whereas you guys, not only did you get your team back, but the NFL kicked in some money for stadium construction. You guys could give a master class to St. Louis on how to do it right. You may have ended up with le- with less money in terms of out of pocket, but you got the thing that really mattered, yeah. which was an and NFL they, team. They did, they did right. And the NFL was at that time a little bit a little bit beat up about how well Carolina and um, how well Carolina and Jacksonville came into the NFL and played. So they didn't really do as many favors for Cleveland in that regard, but they kept the team. That's right. They kept the team. So um, we're worth the- much more than 790 million. I'll tell you that. And by the way, the city no. after attorney's fees in St. Louis, they only netted 500 million. 
you got a team. The team's worth what, like two over two billion dollars if it's ever sold. It's never going to be sold, of course. But the value of a professional sports franchise is perpetual. It grows in value, whereas you know, city leaders are just going to screw it up and waste money. And then at the end of a year or two, what do they? What do they have? They certainly don't have a football team in St. Louis, and that is a tragedy. So Cleveland did it the right way. They sure did. They they got a they got everything they needed at least to keep the team well. Now the team is starting. I guess we can reel it back to the modern situation here. They're starting to turn the corner to come into something real. They make a trade for Deshaun Watson, and now we are where we are. And that's where your expertise has been pretty 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 keen around the market. Been on the radio locally, some some popular other spots. I wanted to seal your time to just talk about where this is. How I think it's important as we start the baseline of this. To, to, to let folks understand that this is just such – it's more of a negotiation than, than people think. I think that's what's amazing to me is, is people think a suspension is just dealt out and you have to take it, but it seems as though – and you could probably attest to this and speak to it more elegantly than I can – it's much more of an NFL, NFLPA discussion about trying to find common ground, and then if you can't, obviously working to find something from an arbitrator. So, yeah, I mean, like I guess it's 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 – it's different in that sense than a lot of people understand, right? Well, the time for negotiation was for the CBA that was that was agreed to in 2020. I mean, that was really during a time in which the uh, the, the PA was was being bruised by these adverse decisions in, in Elliott, Adrian Peterson, and, and and Tom and and the Tom Brady Deflategate saga, where it was it should have been really important to the Players Association to kind of level the playing field and. I think they made some gains in the 2020 CBA. At best, they got a disciplinary officer, right? But ultimately, Roger Goodell still stands above her as the ultimate arbiter and appeals judge. So if she if she renders any discipline at all, even if it's a scolding, Roger Goodell can uh, increase that punishment, modify that punishment on appeal to go from a scolding to you know, a multi-year suspension or even banishment. You know, the current personal conduct policy has has a recidivist clause in it that uh, holds or, or states that for any repeat violations of the personal conduct policy, it could, the, the discipline could go up through and including banishment from the league. And if he's being uh, uh, held to account for five alleged separate offenses, well, those could be viewed as repeat violations. So if this were Roger Goodell as the disciplinary officer under the old CBA, the one-year suspension would have already been doled out. But in this CBA, as long as the disciplinary officer does something punitive, Roger Goodell has a free hand to basically rubber stamp whatever the league had originally recommended. So it, I, it really bears watching how Judge... Um, Robinson handles this situation knowing that the appellate court, a.k.a. Roger Goodell, could basically wipe the slate clean and do it all over. So one, one thing that I'm expecting from her is a decision that's going to be very difficult for Roger Goodell to nullify, assuming she comes out on the lighter side of the discipline range. I mean, he can modify the discipline, but through her findings of fact, conclusions of law and her skill as a federal district court judge for over a quarter of a century, I think she knows how to write ironclad opinions that are appeal proof. I just wonder given how much ground the NFLPA has seated here in the, in the CBA, whether there's any such thing as an appeal proof 
disciplinary ruling unless it's no punishment at all. Yeah, I think that's the thing that is interesting to me is it seems that the NFLPA has their side of things and where they want, and there's just a wide gap. So if you think that this, if they end up settling on something or whatever the, the decision from, from, from the arbitrator is here, if she settles in something in the 6, 8, 12 range, do you think that goes to appeal or do you think both sides will be pleased with it? I know that's a lot of conjecture, but I'm just curious like where both sides will leave it be because it feels like if it is a year or if it feels like it ends up being um, you know, zero games, as you just said, that there's going to be some issue from both sides. So if it does, from her decision the second week of, uh, of July, we're kind of expecting – is there a real – do you expect a real change of that decision from Goodell, especially considering this is the first real case that this situation they've decided on, uh, settled on as far as the, the arbitrator and all of that, how that all is laid out? It feels like it would be so counterintuitive to change a lot, but I was curious if you think he, he would change much. Yeah, I think you said the magic number. You said 6, 8, 10. I think the point of demarcation is eight games, right? If you're, if you're Deshaun Watson – and you're given an eight-game suspension. I think you, you, you just basically you, you, you get out of there, take it, and don't run the risk of an enhancement of punishment by Roger Goodell because eight games get you back midseason, mm-hmm. which is amazing. I think that would be an incredible result given what the league has asked for. And I think eight games is enough for the league to feel that they got their pound of flesh. Now, if it's only six games, I think the league would appeal that that uh, that discipline, and if it's six games, of course, Deshaun Watson takes it. So, what is what is the the strike point? You know, sort of the where in the continuum is a suspension amount where both sides would accept it? And I th- I think you're talking eight games or ten games as the point of demarcation because if it's any higher, Watson appeals it because he has no downside at that point except for to, except to go from. You know, maybe a 12-game suspension to potentially one year. I think uh, the low, the, the 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 more, the higher the suspension, the, the more likely it is that Watson appeals it. So where where is the middle ground where both sides can sort of claim victory? And I don't think there's a victory for Watson in an eight-game suspension, but there is closure, there's clarity, yeah. and there's a future in 2018. And I don't think the NFL could look at an eight-game suspension as a slap on the wrist when, for a first offense under the personal conduct policy. For crimes involving or for, for offenses involving violence or threat, the a first offense is only six games. And this was not a an alleged violation involving violence, threats, or coercion. It arguably falls under the scope of, you know, the non-violent type of personal conduct policy offenses, which do not have a minimum baseline suspension requirement. It's fascinating. So there, there you yeah. have it. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm playing the numbers game here. You know, it's sort of psychology. Uh, where is it? Where, where, where do you where do you come out where both sides can live with the result and not roll the dice on an appeal? Of course, the NFL has no risk on an appeal because they are the appellate court. Yeah. Right. So it's it's Watson that has to decide at what point does he take his punishment and accept it, knowing the downside risk he faces by an appeal. And I think when you go above eight games, then I, I think it might the juice might be worth the squeeze for for Watson. But at eight or lower, he probably just takes it. And I think that's where if the judge wants to achieve a Solomon like solution, eight games might be the way to ensure that there's no uh, uh, result 
that ends up going uh, haywire where the league does something on appeal and just basically overrides her discipline. And then you end up in a federal court battle. I, I, th- I think it's in the best interest of the, the National Football League to have this end with this disciplinary ruling, which is all the reason in the world why the party should be negotiating here. I mean, they have until July 11th to file a uh, an appellate post-hearing. No, I'm sorry, not an appellate, but a post-hearing brief. But why did she give the parties that much time when this when the CBA only allows for three days? Of course, the judge or the parties themselves can can agree can agree to shorten that time or extend that time. But it's very telling that giving the parties twelve days when the hearing itself only lasted three days suggests to me that there's some willingness to keep negotiating because yeah. if, the par- if the parties had dug in and they were inflexible, she would just have ordered the briefs to, uh, you know, of course the 4th of July holiday is going to you know ruin everybody's weekend. So maybe she could push it off a couple more days, but July 11th is a full week after the close of the, of the, of, of the third day of the hearing. Maybe, it, maybe it is all on account of the holiday or maybe she's left the door open just ajar for the parties to reach an accord on their own without asking her to make a decision that may displease one or both parties. Let me ask you this question. Great insight there. I, I will, especially the length, that, that's, that's interesting. I haven't really thought of it that way, and that, that does make a ton of sense. Is there any way that last season's situation where he sat out the whole year, I understand that he sat out a majority of the year because of the contract request to get out of there, but it felt like the, the allegations had been stirring at that point and I think I've seen some rumblings and me being the uh, not not a not having a ton of time to read as much on the topic as I would like and be not fully understand fully understanding some of the verbiage on it. I was curious if they're going to consider any of last year's 16, 17 games missed as a part of that punishment. Well, if I'm Jeffrey Kessler, I argue it. And of course, I rely on it. Now, of course, there's some part of last year that was that was consensual. It was it was an agreement between the Houston Texans and Deshaun Watson to honor his trade request. And they would try to you know accede to it. And surely, you know, there was an expectation that at some point during the season he was going to be traded. But when Roger Goodell and I've made this point throughout social media and, you know, in in various interviews. And of course, it it all depends on one's vantage point. If you're in Houston, you you, you hate Deshaun Watson and you think he he made his own bet he should lie in it. But but his decision was based upon an expectation that he would be traded by the deadline. And when Roger Goodell, after having already sent this matter to an NFL investigation months earlier, uh, essentially sat on his hands and made no provided no clarification as to Watson's status, whether or not he'd be p- placed on the commissioner's exempt list. The commissioner's own inaction and failure to clarify his status really was the principal reason why he was not moved by the trade deadline. Who would move three first-round draft picks for him or any other assets mid-season when you're not sure if you're going to be able to you know suit him up? And I believe that I believe culpability here lies with the NFL for not clearing up the status because they eventually made a decision not to place him on the commissioner's exempt list, you know, during the off season. Why couldn't they have made that decision in October, six months after they have already, you know, commenced an investigation? How much time do they need to decide the issue of paid leave? Paid leave is usually a a knee jerk, not a knee jerk reaction, but a decision that's issued at the beginning of an investigation not in the middle, not at the end of an investigation. So by that point, 
Watson's status should have been cleared up by Roger Goodell. And if it had been, some team may have traded for him and he could have been earning his salary. So the last number of games of the 2021 regular season, uh, I think were, you know, exacerbated by the league's culpability in not taking action or not making any decision and leaving, leaving Deshaun Watson, you know, dangling out there in, 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 in all this uncertainty, which completely chilled the trade market for him. And, you know, paid leave never should have been on the table because this wasn't a crime of violence, right? If you look at the personal conduct policy, leave with pay is when a player is formally charged with a crime of violence or having engaged in other conduct that poses a genuine danger to the safety or well-being of another person or having engaged in animal abuse or if the NFL believes a player committed any of that conduct. So the scope of conduct that would justify being placed on the NFL commissioner's paid leave list is narrowly circumscribed to specific types of conduct, none of which would encompass what Deshaun Watson is accused of doing in these civil cases. So the exemplist should have been off the drawing board, you know, from day one, yet the, yet the commissioner's refusal to clarify Watson's status vis-a-vis the exemplist kept him inactive, not of his own accord completely. And I think that should be taken into consideration by Judge Robinson in factoring in whether any suspension is appropriate, because certainly those last missed games uh, are on the NFL's watch, not entirely on Watson's watch. And yeah, you can say he got paid for it. He got paid to sit out with paid leave. That's not discipline. And I would argue it is discipline because you're not playing. And, um, you know, the, the notion that you can't join your teammates, achieve individual accomplishments, accomplishments, compete for championship, that's punitive. When you're being denied that opportunity, of course, uh, you, you know, it, it's it's somewhat uh, salvaged by getting paid some amount of money. But but it, it's it's considered discipline, even if you're paid not being allowed to apply your trade in the limited period of time in which a professional athlete's career lasts. You know, his career could be, you know, 10 to 12 years and to sit him out for a full season, uh, you know, at least from from after the trade deadline. I view that as a form of de facto discipline. And I think that. Uh, Judge Robinson should consider that if she's going to impose any suspension. Do do you think in general this process is better for players having an having an uh, an actual judge who is very critical of evidence and like you mentioned earlier it is it is completely different than what the NFL has done. Do, do you think this is a when the I guess what I'm asking from your opinion if you're in the NFLPA's representative team did this make a ton of sense to help the players or do you think it ultimately ends up hurting them? I don't know if that, I don't know if that's the right word hurting them, but I just, well, I'm curious about this. If you think this is a good process overall. Well, Jake, it's good and bad. I mean, the involvement of a federal district court judge for, you know, she, who was the chief judge of the district of Delaware, that's certainly preferable to having Roger, you know, Goodell or Harold Henderson deciding yeah. discipline in the first instance. I mean, you're having a you're having a, a real neutral here who understands rules of evidence. And in fact, the new CBA provides that the league has to share all the evidence it's going to be relying upon with the player. So there's a little bit more of a fair exchange of evidence than there was in Deflategate and Ezekiel Elliott. So, you know, the, the initial disciplinary hearing, I think, has been uh, has a sense of fairness to it. But what is unfair is the total 
absence of any right to conduct discovery. One of the key arguments that uh, Deshaun Watson has made or his lawyers have made during this disciplinary hearing is look at how the NFL has treated the other owners with regard to sexual misconduct allegations. I mean, you know, if you if you read the personal conduct policy, there's some language in there that says ownership and club or league management have traditionally been held to a higher standard and will be subject to more significant discipline when violations of the personal conduct policy occur. But what is happening in actuality is they're being held to a lower standard because Dan Snyder, Jerry Jones, who has sued several times for at least one time for alleged sexual misconduct and Robert Kraft completely skated. Well, Snyder got a slap on the wrist, a $10 million fine. He's worth two point whatever billion dollars. The point is they weren't sidelined formally by the league. They didn't miss any games. And yeah, there's some question as to whether Dan Snyder is in, you know, sort of on on double secret probation with his wife running the team. But what Watson can point to credibly is the league's disparate treatment of ownership, and, and upper management with regard to some similar allegations of misconduct. Not exactly the same, you know, 25 instances versus one or two, but, but you can at least say that nothing has happened to these owners when they've been arrested, sued for alleged sexual misconduct, and oversaw a 20-plus, in the case of Dan Snyder, oversaw a 20-plus year systemic toxic workplace environment in which Snyder himself is accused of involvement in some of the acts of, uh, of misconduct. So uh, the issue of disparate discipline will resonate with a federal court judge who hears those kinds of disputes in the context of employment discrimination lawsuits. There's a whole body of law regarding disparate discipline and how some individuals are treated differently on the basis of whatever sex, you know, gender, race, national origin. So that kind of a selective enforcement defense is much more likely to resonate with Judge Robinson. The problem is that other than knowledge that there was no discipline, there's absolutely no information about what if any investigative process was undertaken by the National Football League. If I was the lawyer representing Deshaun Watson and this were a normal civil lawsuit, I would be asking the league for its investigative files to make my case that there was disparate discipline. And given the limitations of the CBA, Deshaun Watson has no right to conduct discovery. The best that he can argue is to elicit an admission from the NFL that they investigated Robert Kraft and ultimately did not suspend him. Is that enough? It should be, but certainly to craft a, a really robust selective discipline, of, uh, you know, uh, defense, you'd want to you'd want to be able to obtain all the league records and documentation. So the new CBA doesn't provide the players with any right to to, con- to conduct discovery. It has, or, or or at least through the personal conduct policy, it has an evidence standard that is such a low bar. You know, credible evidence. I think under under the personal conduct policy, the most recent one that's on the NFL's website, you're found to have violated the policy if credible evidence establishes that the player engaged in conduct prohibited by this personal conduct policy. Credible evidence is nothing. That's like zero. That's like just, uh, you know, one witness gave some testimony that may be credible. It doesn't have to be persuasive, just some credible evidence, even if there's conflicting 
testimony going the other way. So it creates a very low evidentiary threshold that the league can easily clear. And I've raised on social media the notion that I don't think she's bound to follow the credible evidence standard because the personal conduct policy has not been incorporated by reference in the in the collective bargaining agreement. And moreover, in Article 46, there's absolutely no reference to the burden of proof in an Article 46 proceeding. Elsewhere in the collective bargaining agreement, they make references to a clear preponderance of the evidence in other types of arbitrations, but make no reference to the applicable burden of proof in an Article 46 proceeding. And uh, it's worth noting that Commissioner Goodell utilized the preponderance of the evidence standard during Deflategate as part of a conduct detrimental Article 46 proceeding. So I think the wild card here is that Judge Robinson may disregard or not follow the credible evidence standard in the personal conduct policy, because that standard, if you read the if you read the policy very closely, that's tethered to the initial recommendation made by a sort of a, a disciplinary officer under under the old regime where a recommendation is made to Commissioner Goodell and Commissioner Goodell as the initial disciplinarian would mete out the discipline. So I think the credible evidence language in the old or in the current personal conduct policy is somewhat outdated. It, it, it means or applies to something a little bit different than a first tier you know, legal proceeding that is being overseen by a federal court judge. And I think if I, if I, was, the, if I was the Players Association, I'd make a real strong argument for the disciplinary officer to use a preponderance of the evidence standard. Make the NFL prove that Watson committed a violation of the personal conduct policy. Don't just rely on a strand of evidence that maybe he did, maybe he didn't. That's too amorphous. I think federal judges really understand the importance of the burden of proof. And that burden of proof appears nowhere in the CBA. And I think she's free to disregard it and decide to uh, attach or apply a more reasonable burden of proof, such as a preponderance of the evidence, which is basically 51% uh, more likely than not that it occurred, as opposed to, you know, you have some, you know, testimony that may be credible, that's enough. I think I think that's a I think that's a complete uh, non-starter as far as industrial due process and fairness. If you really want to have fairness and due process given the player, you need an evidentiary standard that is meaningful and that is and, and that is reflective of an offense being committed, not just the possibility that an offense was committed. Possibilities shouldn't be enough to carry weight with a federal court judge. So if my instincts are correct here, you may see a ruling later in July. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, but I think it's worth battling over that. And the difference between credible evidence and preponderance of the evidence could be the difference between uh, victory and defeat in this instance. That's incredible. That's such good information about how they're going to evaluate what's being put in front of them and what's What's uh, what, you know, what's taken serious? Yeah. It's it's crazy. Well, well, Jake, Jake, this this whole I was bored with the Deshaun Watson uh, legal matter for such a long time. My my co-host on Conduct Detrimental, Dan Lust, wanted to talk about it every week, and the story, you know, the it, nothing really changed. I felt we were just you know, talking about the. It was just basically same shit, different day, and uh, I said en- enough with Deshaun Watson. But now. Now I'm begin- we're beginning to look at it in a different light, 
And with the actual proceeding having begun, we're, we're basically holding these procedures under a microscope and looking at it a little bit different way because now there's an active proceeding. And I think almost it, in many ways, this raises a number of interesting legal issues, um, almost akin to what I, what, I, what I went through in Deflategate, Ezekiel Elliott and Adrian Peterson. You know, just when you think the collective bargaining agreement ties up all the loose ends, when you read the fine print, uh, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of unsettled matters. There's uh, there's some vague language and there's some cleanup that wasn't done. For example, every external document that the league refers to in the collective bargaining agreement, it could be like some disability plan, tuition reimbursement plan. You know, just there there are like dozens of plans that relate to player benefits. Anytime the league and the players refer to an external document in the collective bargaining agreement, they use magic language that says it's expressly incorporated by reference in this agreement and made a part of this agreement. No such language, no such magic language, which has legal significance, is used with respect to the personal conduct policy. So I think it's a failure on the league's attorneys to, uh, to spot that. And that loophole could be big enough for Jeffrey Kessler to drive a truck through uh, if what I believe is correct about the judge's, judge's discretion to uh, have some flexibility on the burden of proof. If she has flexibility on the burden of proof, Watson wins. That's interesting. That's something I'm sure we're going to hear about at some point. I, I would I would say... I have two key questions for you, uh, two questions that I think Browns fans really care about most. If if they make a decision, it, it, whatever that decision is, even if it goes to Goodell for some sort of ruling on whether you know they're going to change it or whatever, the, whatever tweaks they want to make, where it goes from there, as long as there's nothing new that comes out against Watson, he's there's no revisiting this, correct? Like it is... There is no change to that after the NFL has either appealed it or not appealed it, or or Watson has appealed or not appealed. There is no change. This is set in stone. Am I right about that? Or well, about that? as to these offenses, I mean, you can't you yeah. can't view the you know the twelve or five cases as sort of one case. They're five separate alleged offenses. So, with each new. Uh, alleged victim that comes forward. That's a separate offense. And that's, that's yeah. an offense that could give rise to a new personal conduct policy violation. So, you know, when you have a, when you have a, a record of seeing so many massage therapists over a short period of time, and maybe the numbers over 60 and 25 have brought suit, I suppose you might be thinking in the back of your mind, who else is going to come forward? Um, maybe he's reached private settlements with some of those people, but yeah, the risk still exists that even if he moves past this and, 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 you know, you know, and any of the, whether he wins or gets, um, discipline for these offenses, it doesn't provide him a waiver and release for, for, for past offenses yeah. where the victims have not yet come forward either by contacting the league or suing in the Harris County district court in Texas. Got it. So that's that's yeah. As as far as that goes, yeah, that's always going to carry a risk. But I was curious if those were sort of put to bed. Uh, you've answered it. If it's if it's already out there and it's been uh, reported on or or has been has been uh, has mm-hmm. been has been charged or not not charged, but, but you get you get what I'm going with there. But so, Jake, I'm I, you know I I think what's really worth pointing out here is the league cherry picked its victims. 
uh, listen, five victims, you know, exist and, and these things happen to them. I guess they're five offenses, but 12, 24 people sued, 25, actually 25 women sued, but only 12 cooperated with the National Football League. And of that 12, the league only found five of them worth putting forward as a case against Deshaun Watson. So out of 25 separate massage therapists that have come forward, the league has only viewed, or the league has only successfully, uh, you know, believes that 20% of that number are credible, which means 80% either didn't come forward or deemed not credible enough by the National Football League. And I think that is something that should be taken into account by, by Judge Robinson for sure. And listen, for, and I want to I make this point really clear. There are not, there's not going to be three bites at the apple for Deshaun Watson. If he's going to win it all and be successful, it can only be before Judge Robinson because he's not going to get relief from Judge Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell, if there's any suspension at all, Roger Goodell will not reverse it. He'll only leave it intact or enlarge it. So there's no possibility for winning before appellate court judge Rogers, Stokel, Goodell, whatever his middle name is. And equally important, I think some, many of the Browns fans who think that federal court lies as a, uh, a wild card here, I've taken a closer look at the Deflategate ruling. I lived it. I was in the courtroom. Uh, during uh, during the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals oral argument, I sat front row next to Michael McCann and, and uh, Alan Milstein, and the opinion pretty much grants Commissioner Goodell almost unbridled authority as long. Now, I wouldn't say grants him authority, but makes it next to impossible to overturn an NFL labor or arbitration award, the standard. The standard is as long as the commissioner was acting within the scope of his authority as outlined in the CBA, there's no basis for overturning it. The only relief is to renegotiate the CBA and, and have different arbitral powers granted in, 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 Roger, in Roger Goodell. And what the players agreed to here is the very thing Browns fans are afraid of is that uh, the notion that on an appeal, Roger Goodell is going to hear it and he'll have the ability to increase the punishment. Those are the very things that the players agreed to. That's within the scope of his authority under the 2020 CBA. And that being the case, there's absolutely no basis for reversing him by a federal district court unless there can be some showing that Roger Goodell, instead of applying the agreement, the CBA, decided to impose his own brand of industrial justice. That's the language in Deflategate. But uh, you know, when, when you're granting Roger Goodell the right to be the appellate judge, coupled with the right to increase the punishment, that's acting within the scope of his authority. And any federal court lawsuit brought by Deshaun Watson probably, I, w I wouldn't say probably, but 99% likely would fail. Of course, we're a ways away from making any predictions about the outcome of federal court lawsuits because we haven't seen the ruling from Judge Robinson. We don't know what Commissioner Goodell would do if he was hearing the appellate proceedings. So uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to use percentages, but the language in Deflategate seems pretty ironclad and, and, and seemingly difficult for any player to overcome in this particular instance, when the players 
freely negotiated the right to give Goodell the power to hear any appeals from the disciplinary officer and to increase the punishment based upon the record below. So yeah, that, having, that's the fascinating. Point, having right. ceded those rights, yeah, how can you argue he acted outside the scope of his authority? Yeah. So when the decision is announced on what the recommendation or what her decision is, Sue Robinson's decision, it's important to remember that's not ironclad, right? Like that means Goodell, they, they, and I could be understanding, misunderstanding this, but he can then take that appeal from the decision and make a different one, right? He can. No, he can no, 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 no. There, there are some subtleties here. Okay. If Judge Robinson finds that a violation of the personal conduct policy has not occurred, it's over. The okay. NFL can't appeal that. You can't appeal. The, the NFL can only appeal the severity of the discipline, not the entitlement to a That's finding of discipline. So it. It, it's, it's only the number, not whether it, whether it happens. So if, if she finds for Deshaun Watson uh, on, on these allegations, uh, the case is over. The league has no ability to appeal that ruling. It's full, final, and binding. Maybe they take her to arbitrate. Maybe they take her to federal court. But again, as long as the hearing officer was acting within the scope of her authority, uh, it's difficult to conceive of a, a pathway to success at the federal court level when courts are reluctant to interfere with uh, you know, labor arbitrate with the labor arbitration process. It requires something really severe, really severe. And what's happening here, or what what I think would be happening here in terms of you know just looking forward is is that the players would be unhappy with the punishment, but can't, uh, it, it wouldn't be able to contradict that Goodell was acting within the scope of his authority. They just don't agree with the punishment and the severity of the punishment is not a basis for challenging an arbitration decision in federal court. It, it's basically, it's a non-starter. So if, if Judge Robinson sides with Watson, it's over. If Judge Robinson grants any discipline, then either side can take an appeal. Got it. Perfectly stated. Great to know. This has been ultra informative, Daniel. We cannot, listeners of the OBR Film Breakdown, cannot thank you enough, man, for, for your time laying this out. We have a great idea of where it is going into June 11th. And um, listen, we, we appreciate you so much directing folks over to your podcast. You do great work over there, man. Thanks so much again. It's my pleasure. You know, I've, I, I, I never thought that the first week of July, last week of June, I'd be, uh, you know, li living this like day by day. But it's now become an obsession. It has become the deflate gate of the summer of 2022. And I never really thought it would rise to that level. But, you know, when, you, you know, when you're talking about it months away, it's hard to summon up the same level of, you know, excitement over it. And the intrigue, the intrigue really begins when you're in the midst of this proceeding. And then, you know, it's like a trial. So uh, this is now something that could, without a settlement, occupy the rest of our summer. You know, we could have a decision in late July, an appeal that, that could uh, go throughout end of July, beginning mid-August, and then could be a federal court challenge. And as much as I've thrown cold water on the prospects for success in a federal court ruling, we first have to see what Roger Goodell does if there's an appeal. So this could be the summer of Deshaun Watson. Instead of instead of in training camp, he could be in federal court as early as the middle of August. Wow, wow, it's crazy. I think I've not heard a lot of this stuff, so it's really great to uh, to catch up on it and give us all the things from all the different angles, especially knowing the timeline 
of where we're at with training camp at the end of July and how that could interrupt a lot of stuff too. So again, Dan, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, man. My, my pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Look, I hope you guys learned as much from that episode as I did. So shout out to Daniel for taking time and doing a great job breaking that down to somebody like myself so I can understand it at the level that I needed to understand it. And hopefully you guys got a lot from it too, in terms of uh, just pieces of information about the case, the proceedings, the NFL's collective bargaining agreement and how this process ties into that and how it's different than what was in place before. We'll ultimately see if it goes in the Browns favor. I don't know if that will happen or not, but nonetheless, it just, just great stuff from Daniel to enlighten us on where all of this stands and what's at limbo here before the week of July 11th gets here. So a couple episodes over the weekend. Hopefully you guys did enjoy these. It's a long week and a holiday weekend. So I wanted to put some stuff out for you because I know you're going to be doing things and you might have some downtime and you can listen to some pods. So hopefully you enjoyed it. We will have another one up tomorrow on the 4th of July. So happy early 4th of July uh, to, to you and yours. So hopefully you've had some time to grill out and have some fun this weekend. We went to the pool, had a great time and then uh, hung out with some friends, and, and it's just a, a much-needed recharge. But the podcasts don't stop. I'll take some breaks here and there, but they don't stop. Got to get a lot of them put out. We will start on defensive previews for your Monday episode, so check back in on Monday when we look at the defensive ends ahead of the 2022 season, which will be here before we know it. End of July, training camp hits us, preseason games not long after that. And before we know it, it's the 2022 season. But this decision we talked about here with Daniel – is going to loom large in the success of your Cleveland Browns this year. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Thanks again to him. Thanks again to you for checking out this pod, supporting the OBR's Twitch podcast you're listening to right here, or the website. Join us. Become a member. Become a family member of the OBR. You won't regret it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Go Browns. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.